Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Kevin, who goes by the internet moniker and calm Psycom, and he identifies as an anarchist, a communist, and as an inspiring science communicator. He's also a general enthusiast of philosophy, and we get into some talk about politics, anarchism, and revolution. Again, I am your host, MC Squared, Solidarity Forever. Communicator. He's also a philosophy enthusiast. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So let's break. Let's break down. Uh, you know, kind of the some, some terms here. So an anarchist. This is some of my favorite favorite stuff. Uh, talking about political ideology, philosophy. Um, what does anarchism mean to you? So anarchism. Um... It, it comes from the the Greek words, uh, basically meaning no rulers, uh, just the, the and prefix uh, negating archos uh, or coming from archons, which was the name of like judges within ancient Greek society. Uh, more generally, it just refers to the idea that, um, you know, rigid, uh, rigid hierarchies of power, of dominance, of control of you know, one person over another, one group over another, et cetera, these, that these ideas are not only unnecessary to build a, a strong, functioning, caring society, but are, in fact, harmful to that goal. Do you think a classless society is possible? Absolutely, yeah. And class, class is one of the many different kinds of hierarchies you find in society, right? Economic class, where you know you have some people who control, uh, you know, control certain uh, aspects of of production within an economy, uh, versus the people who who are actually doing the labor of that economy. You also have racial hierarchies, gender hierarchies, hierarchies based around sexuality, uh, around language, around culture, around military. There are myriad different hierarchies in our society that we tend to build these power structures around, some far more dominant than others. Um, but ultimately, like I'm, I'm of the opinion that I don't think any of these are necessary for society to function. And I think most, if not all of them, are actually harmful to the goal that is, you know, trying to make society as, you know, as fair as possible for the people living in it, while also allowing people to, you know, do what it is they enjoy most. You know, I'm, I'm very freedom focused, but I'm also very like, you know, 
against these hierarchies, which I think both restrict freedom and restrict fairness. I'm all on board, man. I'm an, I'm an anarchist too. So um, I think that uh, when I look at how society should be structured, I don't think that anyone can plan out, you know, a future society, a better society, a just society. There must be cooperation and participation. That's why I really am a big proponent of democracy, um, real democracy, certainly not what we have um, in the United States, which is, you know, we pull one or one of two levers for one of two terrible choices. You know, sometimes one choice is uh, obviously worse than, than the other, but sometimes it's not, not even that quite easy. You know, sometimes we have a horrible choice and a, another rotten choice. And we just got to, you know, I guess sometimes vote, uh, vote against, you know, the worst candidate. Um, but that's certainly not democracy by any means, by any stretch of the word. Um, and, and a lot of times, like when we pull our lever, you know, for one of these two awful candidates, at least in the American system, um, you know, the, the, we're just ratifying uh, elite decision making, which was made behind closed doors that didn't involve any you know, public participation, did not involve any true democracy in any sense of the word. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think that, um, you know, what we call democracy is is a poor shadow of the concept. Um, you know, again, going back to kind of the etymology of the word, because I'm, I'm a weird, uh, you know, language nerd, and I like to look up these things, you know, uh, demos coming from the Greek prefix, meaning, you know, the people or the population, uh, the suffix crazy coming from kratos, which is, you know, a form of, er, which was, I believe, uh, a word for king, although I could, could be wrong about that, I haven't looked it up in a bit. Uh, but, you know, the idea is that it is the people who rule. Now, one thing a lot of people will will bring up, and I think this is a valid criticism, is um, that the specific form of democracy we tend to use, majority rules democracy, does tend to have its drawbacks, right? Because it means that if there is a large group of people with one opinion and a smaller group of people with a different opinion, the larger group simply gets to push their uh, their ideas on the smaller group. And we've seen a lot in the past how that can have its problems. Um, this is why I tend to look for other forms of democracy because there are many of them out there. You can, you know, if you think about all of the different ways that a group of people can come to a decision, there are many, many different ways of doing that. The one I tend to kind of... Uh, you know, be attracted to is one called consensus democracy. And a kind of very short explanation of that is it is the idea that in order for a society to properly represent all of the, the, the needs, desires, wants of all of the people, then there should be a way to, for all of the people in that society to come together and find a way through compromise, through agreements, through whatever that everyone can agree on. It's almost like a unanimous democracy, though it's got, I think, some some particular um, uh, particular like what's the word I'm looking for structures in it that allow it to kind of build toward consensus rather than just expecting everyone to to be unanimous because that's never going to happen on you know on the first run. So the idea is that you know if you have a group a large group of people that are deciding on something and you have a small group that says, no, you know, we don't want it to be done this way. 
then it is the responsibility of the majority to find ways to convince the minority to agree with them, whether that be through compromises, changes, um, you know, basically the idea of actually working with one another and trying to understand the concerns of all the involved parties rather than simply dismissing them because you have the majority, right? And I think that having this this kind of a system where you actually take into account what everyone thinks, not just what the biggest group thinks, right? And you are trying to make a society that everyone wants to live in. Um, and, and so, you know, putting, you know, putting people on, on a hierarchical ladder doesn't really achieve that. What you want is something where everyone actually does have a proper say and everyone has the ability to say, this is harmful to me and mine. Um, so we, we need to find a different way to accomplish whatever goal it is we're trying to accomplish. So I'm going to have to strongly disagree on something in particular that you said. And mm-hmm. you said that basically the majority is trying to, the majority typically wins out. And the majority is usually trying to um, convince or maybe, maybe what even some might call manufacture the consent or engineer the consent of the minority. But I think it's, I think you got to twist it a little bit, at least the way I see it in practice. So I'll go back to the founding of the country, James Madison, when he was designing um, the government system, the framer of the constitution at the constitutional um, Congress. Uh, he was quoted as saying government should be designed to protect the opulent minority from the majority. So what the founding fathers wanted to do was limit democracy. Um, at the time, they uh, they wanted to make sure that you know the only people that could vote were rich white uh, property owners, the landed aristocracy, um, and you know nothing has changed really. Um, if you go back to a 2014 study at, uh, at Princeton, they, they I think they came out. I don't think I think it's like 70 or 75 percent. Um, it said something like 75 percent. Well, first they called the United States an oligarchy, which I agree with. Uh, and then they said something like 75% of the U.S. electorate has been disenfranchised, where if essentially a large majority of the population has no influence on policy in Washington. So typically, we're governed by uh, elites uh, and their po- policy choices. Uh, and typically, those elites are tied into economic interests. So just like the hierarchies um, that they uh, set up in terms of their vehicles for capitalism to exploit uh, workers and you know rob and loot and steal from you know, the global south. They set up these hierarchies where you know you have a board of directors and an executive on top, and basically you have as much say in these corporations um, based on the amount of stock you own. And if you own a lot of stock, you have a lot of say. Um, but you know, again, I think I'm just kind of going back to the founding of the country, and even you know, uh, in modern times, um, seems like not much has changed at, at the time when. Uh, you know, America was founded, the government was set up to protect the opulent minority from the majority. And now I'll go um, back to David Hume, who says power resides within the governed. So a lot of times um, people think that, you know, power resides, um, you know, by by force or uh, military or, or that sort of thing, which, you know, in some sense of the word is true, but he, he kind of says that, you know, powers uh, within the governed, um, the people just, just are, you know, the government, I guess, kind of 
or the power centers in society try to itemize and, and keep people, you know, broken up, divide and conquer kind of thing. Um, but basically said, like, you know, the, the rulers and the leaders, they rule by um, opinion. So they, they try to, and this is kind of back to the manufacture of consent, uh, thought control. And that, that is the most prevalent um, method of control in a quote-unquote democratic society. In a totalitarian society, you can use force. You know, you could throw people in a gulag or a concentration camp or literally just, you know, kill them on the spot with, you know, uh, security forces and, you know, terror squads and militias and even, you know, military um, but yeah, I, I just, I just disagree. I, I think that the, with the majority, and this kind of even goes back to Aristotle, Aristotle saw that, you know, the problem with democracy was, you know, if the majority ever get their, um, you know, voting power together, um, you know, that they would, what they would try to do is, um, a more equal distribution of property and wealth within the society. Um, and so what, what Aristotle uh, proposed was a welfare state to try to ensure that, you know, we have health and education and safety nets for the most vulnerable people in society. Um, but um, James Madison wanted to solve that problem by just limiting democracy, saying, you know, women can't vote, slaves can't vote, uh, that sort of thing. And even going back to ancient Greece, I read something like 20% of uh, Athenians could vote. So that's not a very that's not very democratic. Um, I think you had to be a certain social status. Uh, I even read, I believe, that Aristotle couldn't even vote in Athens. He was pretty high up in in, in social status and all that sort of thing. But uh, that that's kind of you know at least the way I see it. Uh, we're typically ruled over by elites, even though the majority should have the power and we should use it. You know, but all the systems in place. So, for example, the Senate and the wealth of the nation. Um, the, first off, the Senate was appointed; it wasn't voted on uh, at the founding of the United States. Uh, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the reason for that was they wanted to handpick, um, you know, people that would be sympathetic to property owners, and especially elite, you know, rich property owners, and to ensure that if you know a progressive piece of legislation or land reform ever got through the first house, which is unlikely, but still happens sometimes, um, it would be struck down in the Senate. And I think you kind of see that system today in place. I mean, it's really, really hard to get a progressive piece of legislation through both houses. And that was set up for a reason, to limit um, democracy. Um, and, you know, you have uh, you know, six-year terms for senators, and it takes millions and millions of dollars to run a Senate campaign to get in there, you know, to, to, be, to be that, um, you know, uh, to be that uh, power center, you know, where, where laws are formed. Um, but yeah, what do you what do you think about what do you think about my my interpretation of democracy, majority rules, and how I don't see it at all in the United States? I don't think the majority rules. I think we're ruled, ruled over no. by a small group of elites. No, so okay, you're a you're absolutely right. We are in fact ruled over by the minority, and and that I guess one of the things maybe I forgot to point out is that like democracy is ideally meant to to at least you know in its you know in its most basic form be kind of a majority rule system right and obviously that's not even the case here we're not even working under democracy we're working under uh, what is effectively an oligarchy uh you know, or, a plutocracy, are, working... or a kleptocracy i throw these terms out there too but yeah oligarchy, yeah like kleptocracy, oh, oh, kleptocracy you know. yeah whatever particular system you or whatever you know particular word you want to use the fact is we are ruled by a small uh, group of people who hold a disproportionately gigantic amount of wealth 
and therefore by control of that wealth control everything else right yeah. so yeah. you know it, it is it is effectively you know corporate heads billionaires etc these are the people who hire the lobbyists who you know put pressure on the politicians to do the things that they want and there there's a study that came out a few years ago which showed specifically that like depend or that depending where you were in the economic hierarchy it determined very heavily what your influence over uh over actual practical policy was yeah. um you know if if you were in the bottom 90% then no matter what the that portion of people thought about a particular bill any particular bill had about a 30% chance of passing within congress versus if you were in the top 1% your in, your um opinion of a particular bill had a huge impact on whether or not it got passed. So we can see very clearly that the people with the most money have the most power within our political system. What I was talking about earlier with regards to majority versus minority, that was kind of the idealized situation where like it is in fact a the majority that holds the most power and the problems that we might see in those particular cases because it's a it's a um it's a complaint I get a lot about uh you know having a direct democracy style of governing. Um with regard to what you said about Hume, where he was saying that, you know, power comes from the people, he is absolutely correct. The The government gets its power primarily through the assent of the government, right? And so the people, when people simply allow the government to, to exist, um, they are implicitly giving it power over them to do whatever it's going to do, right? Now, this, you know, this kind of only goes so far because, you know, a small group of people can't overthrow a government the size of, you know, the U.S. government, obviously, but that's partially by design. Uh, you know, they, they've built up this massive beast of bureaucracy in order to prevent that sort of outcome, not to mention the, the gigantic, you know, military and police industrial complexes um, and all of these things. One, uh, and I think this this is well summed up by um, in the book uh, The Dawn of Everything um, by David Graeber and David Wingrow. They go over, they kind of provide a definition of the three basic sources of domination in societies, which is control over violence, which they call sovereignty, control over information, i.e. bureaucracy, and charismatic competition, politics. Um, and then they actually go over uh, a myriad of different uh, societies, you know, from between six and 12,000 years ago and are able to actually identify, you know, this society used one kind, this society used another kind, this society used the third kind. And it's only far more recently that any of any two, much less three of these uh, of these sources of domination were used in combination. Now, of course, we see all three of them used pretty much everywhere, right? Every country has a military and or police apparatus for uh, controlling the populace through violence. They all have various bureaucratic, uh, you know, labyrinths to, um, you know, to control what people know, what they can do in terms of like going through, quote unquote, the system. And then they all have these various uh, charismatic competitions, which we call, you know, election campaigns. Elections, right. 
And typically what they do with the elections, and it's run by the media, and it essentially turns it into, you know, a quadrennial extravaganza, you know, a circus, where they try to distract us with, you know, um, character flaws and, um, you know, uh, personality issues and sometimes even, you know, sexual infidelity, um, but never get to the issues, you know, or sometimes they're even talking about like, you know, what color tie did they wear or did they not wear tie or, um, you know, what was their, uh, I, I don't know, what was their body language, just nonsense, um, because they know that if we get into the issues, there's not really any real differences between the candidates. So what they have to do is, you know, distract us uh, by other means with things that are um, not important. Uh, and I think if we had a real, you know, free press in the United States, um, we would actually talk about some of these issues. Like, for example, uh, seven out of 10 Americans want some form of universal health care. 56% want normalized relations with Cuba. Uh, 60% want student debt relief. Uh, the vast majority, I think it's close to 70-some percent, want um, to legalize pot. I think it's like at least 60-some percent. Um, but I, I, I guess I can look it up right now. But, I mean, all these issues uh, is, you know, things we want from government and things we want now from government. But, of course, none of these issues are even on the table to debate because both Republicans and Democrats oppose uh, everything I've said so far. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I pulled up uh, the stat here. This looks like uh, Pew Research America is a very heavily polled society. So we got all these numbers out here. Of course, uh, the, the leaders or whatever, I always quote leaders. I, I don't want leaders. I want uh, I want political representatives. I want real working class representation. But they, they know what we're, we think. Um, that's because we live in a so-called somewhat democratic society because they actually care what we think. Because we have some influence in policy, not a lot, but it's not a totalitarian society. They can't just throw us in jail for thinking the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing. Um, but here it says here, Pew Research, an overwhelming share of the U.S. adults, 88%, say that either marijuana should be legal for medical or recreational purposes. So that's the vast majority um, on a federal level, but neither party will do anything about that because... Um, they don't really care that much what we think. Um, they just want to. They, they want to be aware of it, um, but certainly um, our preferences are not. Um, you know, at least the preferences of the majority are not um, very well taken into consideration, unless we're above, like you were mentioning, a certain economical in, economic income scale. I want. I want to go back to Hume though, because of course, you know, I think he said force lies within the governed, something like that. Um, but this was prior to, you know, um, industrial warfare, World War One. I. I mean, Hume was talking in the 18th uh, century here. I think he wrote his, uh, one of his, I think the Inquiry, I think it was that 1776 when it was published. Um, but, um, yeah, that was, that was prior to industrial warfare, prior to World War One, World War Two, prior to nuclear bombs. Um, so I guess it's possible now that force lies within the small group of elites that control the military, you know what I mean? Uh, it would, like you were saying, it'd be pretty tough for the majority even now to overthrow by force, you know, a police state, uh, a military that spends a trillion dollars a year that has, you know, helicopters, jets, nuclear weapons, you know, an and, and unimaginable, um, you know, weapon of, uh, or unimaginable number of weapons, you know, so it wouldn't, I don't think it would go down too well. But in theory, at least, in a democracy, you know, the majority should have power over policy. Um, but I guess, you know, uh, 
uh, force and, and that sort of thing. So what, what do you think about that, though? I mean, I think you were mentioning before that, you know, it's probably unlikely that, uh, uh, you know, there would ever be a revolution to overthrow those in power unless it was like a bottom-up revolution. But even if the elites that were in control of, um, you know, the military and all these weapons, um, you know, they could probably wipe out the wipe out the populace if they really wanted to, right? Yeah, yeah, they absolutely could. Um, so just to kind of uh, loop back to the the pot thing, so I, I wanted to point out that uh, you're correct that like no one federally is is making any real moves to try and legalize it. Um, and in fact, I believe all of the states that have legalized it so far have done so through, in most cases, ballot initiatives, which are usually voter led. Right? Yeah. Someone, someone, you know, creates the 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 ballot measure, gets the signatures um, to to put it through that state bureaucracy, and then it goes to a popular vote. Uh, with with all of the state's voters. Um, and so, you know, very few, if any, um, I'm sure there are some out there, I just don't know specific examples of those states that have legalized it either medicinally or recreationally have done so primarily through, through ballot measures. Um, as far as the military question goes, so, you know, the thing about military force, especially today, is that we have developed weapons that give... Uh, a small number of people, a massively outsized ability in terms of who they can cause violence to, right? Um, even aside from nuclear weapons, you know, just conventional explosives, you know, we have conventional explosives these days that can, you know, wipe out entire city blocks. Um, and these aren't just limited to, like, military personnel. We've, we've seen, you know, uh, civil police forces use these kind of weapons on civilian populations. Uh, the, the most popular example I think of when thinking about this is the move bombing in... Um, I always forget if it's Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. It was in the seventies, um, and Move was a was a radical, um, you know, black liberation organization, um, and they had holed up in, uh, in, you know, in a apartment building in uh, I, I I think it was Philadelphia. Again, I could have the location wrong. Anyways, they had holed up in an uh, in an apartment building in a fairly densely populated area of town, and when the police got sick of you know showers of bullets going into this building and not being able to actually kill any of these people they brought in a helicopter with literal bombs and it ended up killing uh i want to say dozens if not hundreds of civilians uh who lived in the area burned down something like 200 different housing units uh in that region and they just they just used that on civilians right no, here no at, fucks given. Yeah. I'm looking here at the uh, Battle of Blair Mountain. This was a strike. Oh, yeah, it looks like yes, 7, one of 000. my favorites. Yeah, I didn't know too much about this. And I, apparently the New yeah. York Times article, not, not that you can always believe the New York Times, but apparently it says, you know about it today. That is true. Why isn't mm -hmm. history taught in uh, American schools? Maybe we'll get back to that. Um, but this Battle of Blair Mountain where I guess it was um, – Five days long, over a 12-mile stretch of land in West Virginia, something like 7,000 striking miners um, were resisted by the sheriffs and the local coal companies, the coal barons, and they were firing on these striking miners um, with hillside machine guns 
dropping homemade bombs from planes. So, yep. yeah, the, this is yeah, 1921, so, 1921, August 1921. Uh, the history of American labor is very violent. A small group of people. It, oh, it's were, extremely violent. Uh, yeah, so the Battle of Blair Mountain is, is one of my favorites because it shows the level to which a mass organized movement can actually get shit done. Uh, because, yes, while ultimately they were defeated when, um, uh, when I believe it was Woodrow Wilson called in the National Guard the National to Guard, essentially yeah. bomb yeah. This, uh, this legion of thousands of coal miners, um, so you know, 7, they... Yeah, they managed to hold their own for five days against the might of the entirety of you know the, the uh, of the, the Pinkertons, the which were hired by the coal barons, the sheriffs, and the state police. You know, they managed to actually get some shit done. And like, if you go through American labor history, um, you find that a, pretty much everything that we now take for granted in terms of you know labor rights were you know were fought for and usually the result uh, of dead labor organizers right because they would rather kill us in a lot of cases than concede to basic labor protections so this is something you'll find throughout early uh 20th or late 19th and early 20th century uh american history is just the massive might of the labor movement and the fact that uh you know that ultimately corporations learned that direct violence wasn't as effective as psychological manipulation in crushing those labor movements which is uh, a big part of the reason why we've seen such a decline since the 70s um in in like union participation rates yeah i mean but it's been you know it's been a tactic you know from the top you know from reagan on when he said you know we're not going to we're not going to follow U.S. law. You know, we're going to allow, um, you know, these corporations to break up the unions, to allow them to threaten tr- job transfer, you know, overseas. Um, you know, like NAFTA, for example, um, transferring jobs to Mexico, where an even high, more highly exploited workforce, you know, Mexican workers, uh, are going to do a job for cheaper, at least cheaper than um, their, you know, uh, pampered Western worker, you know, to quote the Business Times. Um, so, you know, that's that's kind of how neoliberalism works is, um, you know, basically you put, um, you know, you, you, you if you, you want to deregulate and get rid of like things like OSHA and environmental standards and, you know, safety, safety standards in the workplace. Um, so, you know, what we do have in safety standards here, um, which we need, you know, far, far better, I think, like. Labor, labor injuries and stuff under the Reagan, during the Reagan years in the 80s, you know, I think, I, I don't want to quote a figure here, but they went up a lot. Um, but not only that, you know, with the, the industrialists, the capitalists, whatever, you know, with neoliberalism, um, you know, you, you go from one workforce and you find an even more exploited workforce with a country that has even less environmental standards and, and less, you know, human rights, or at least doesn't take the human rights seriously. And you can pay, you know, workers in the global south, you know, a fraction of what you're going to pay American workers. And this is, uh, this system is, is twisted and twofold because not only, um, you know, you, you transfer jobs, you know, out of the United States to another country, 
uh, to a, a more highly exploited workforce. But that, in turn, actually um, works to lower wages for everyone, not just wages in the United States, but wages in Mexico. And if, if you look at, at what happened with NAFTA, it decimated, you know, the Mexican economy. That's one of the reasons we have, um, you know, such a, uh, such a, um, I guess a migrant problem because people are trying to get to the United States, which we were the architects of destroying the economy there. Um, and then the other thing I want to get to about, like we talked about pot a little bit, um, you know, I'm for essentially legalization of drugs. I really don't want to criminalize behavior. I'm all about rehabilitation, not, you know, penalizing or uh, incarcerating. We have a, we have a police state with, you know, we lead the world and, and, and those incarcerated, um, you know, and, and they want to talk about more exploitation. Slavery never ended when you, when you want to talk about prison labor, which is a fundamental component of the capitalist economy. Um, when you can exploit prisoners um, for pennies on the dollar, and I even heard in Texas, and I'm sure there's other states, um, you don't even get paid for prison labor. Um, you just get as you get good time served. So, I mean, there's just so many um, methods that the capitalists can use to, you know, kind of keep the workers down. But if it wasn't for these hot, hard-fought struggles and, and unionizing efforts and worker-led organizations and resistance movements, like some of the things that we're talking about. Uh, I'm from Western Pennsylvania. The Pinkertons, they came up and shot up the, the striking workers in Homestead in the 1880s, early 1890s, um, when the robber barons, Andrew Carnegie, you know, I think it was like a, I think it was like a six day work week, 10 or 12 hours a day for like two bucks a week. And these workers are fighting for better wages, better safety standards, better benefits, healthcare. Um, you know, they wanted, uh, better pay. Uh, they wanted weekends, you know, an eight hour workday they were fighting for. Um, but all these things, you know, that we have, um, thankfully today, they were, they were won, you know, from, from workers um, through hard-fought struggles and an uphill battle against concentrated wealth and power. Uh, and unfortunately, yeah, it's a, lot, it's a lot more humane country today. We have a lot more rights and privileges than workers that came a generation or two before us and certainly workers that came hundreds of years uh, before us. So we have them to thank for all of the benefits we have today. But what we can't do is stop. we got to keep fighting because typically class wars one-sided and any game, you know, if we ever get to the four-day work week or anything like that, it's not going to come from above as a gift. You know, it's going to be granted to us because of hard-fought struggle, um, bottom-up democratic movements, resistance, protests, sit-down strikes, which are one step away of saying, you know, we don't need bosses. We can do this ourselves. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, like, that's that's kind of part of why I'm an anarchist because like, I, you know, my journey kind of took me from, you know, from looking at, you know, the ideas of, of socialism and communism and, and, you know, what has been put in place before and seeing that, okay, there were, there were some issues with, you know, even, even in the socialist and the communist uh, aspiring governments, because the idea of communist, countries is kind of an oxymoron uh but like if you look at uh, yeah if, if you look at how they've you know how they've uh actually gone you tend to find that they tend to seem or that they tend to just reproduce those class divisions you know yep. under different names yep. um so what it really comes down to is that 
you know, when we're talking about productive labor, which granted in today's economy is becoming less and less prevalent, but when you're talking about productive labor, the people doing the work are the people who know best how that work should be done, right? That's just, that's a fact of, of you know, basic, like, if you think about it for two seconds, you know, I'm not going to ask the CEO of a telecom company how to, you know, how to string wires from the pole <laughs> yeah. outside my house to get into my house so that I have internet, right? Assuming He's they knew what a wire know. was from a hole in their ass, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. No, I'm going to ask the guy who's on the truck with the tools running the cable because he knows what the fuck he's doing, right? He's the guy who's actually been out there for, you know, for years doing this shit in practice. He knows how the job gets done. He knows how the sausage is made, as people love to say. Yeah. Um, you know, the the guy behind the desk uh, a thousand miles away don't know shit, right? Yeah. He's he's there to, you know, he's just there to make sure that uh, you know, he's taking as much money out of the pockets of the subscribers and the workers as he possibly can so he can give that to his, you know, to his wealthy buddies in the shareholder meeting. So the people who are actually doing the work are the people who know best how the work should be done. And that is the reason that, that like, give them that ability to make those decisions to, you know, they can come together and collectively make decisions about how a company should be run because they know how to make that shit happen. So th this is why I'm I'm frustrated both, you know, with both, you know, people on the uh, on the pro capitalism side where it's a small group of, you know, owners who get to say everything and yeah. people on the, you know, author authoritarian, you know, communist side who say it's the it's the small group of, quote unquote, true communists or party members that get to say uh, on how to do things. I'm like, OK, so in both cases, you're you're saying that, like. 90% plus of the people just don't really get a say. That's not okay with me. I'm I'm not cool with that. Like that's that's not that's not going to lead to a significant change in how we actually go about our daily lives or and how we improve, you know, actual material conditions for people around the world, not just in the wealthy imperialist countries, but throughout the global south. So, I uh I want to say a few things. I'm all on board. I agree with all that. That's the problem. <laughs> uh, I never had another anarchist on my airwaves here on Necessary Illusions. You're the first one. I've usually I've had a bunch of Marxists, and we usually it's usually the Marxists getting on and uh, apologizing for Lenin and Stalin. Who at least Stalin, uh, I think, is one of the worst criminals in, of uh, you know modern history. Um, I, I think that the Soviet Union all it did was create. A commissar class. So instead of a class of you know capitalists that owned the businesses, who you know also buy the government essentially, at least buy influence in that government, um, you know they, they kind of you know you had a kind of a commissar class, powerful central state that owned everything. So you kind of cut out that um, you know ownership class of capitalists and, and business elites. Um, so all you did with you know capitalist society to a, whatever a Soviet to, to to a communist Soviet Union was you just changed where the power centers were. So instead of, you know, in, in American society, you know, we have like the political class of politicians who, you know, kind of go there and are the figureheads for essentially the elites, uh, essentially to, um, you know, kind of push forward their agenda uh, and ratify it through bureaucracy and 
governmental levers and gears, all that kind of stuff that was designed by the founding fathers. And the Soviet Union, what, what I kind of see is, you know, kind of autocrats and, you know, um, powerful commissars that, um, you know, had influence over every aspect of society. And it was a much more, um, you know, it was, it was like, I like to quote Chomsky a lot. He called it like a dungeon. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't much of a, I don't know, it wasn't all that much better for workers. You know, it was certainly really good for the commissar class of people and the Bolsheviks, um, who, you know, kind of took power, and I see it as a coup d'etat. I don't see it necessarily as a revolution. I see revolution as a bottom-up thing. And maybe we can also talk about revolution and violence. I, I hope that... So the only, the only reason I think there would be violence in a revolution is if the ruling class doesn't want to give up their power willingly. So I think it's probably likely, you know? Um, but I don't yes. necessarily want a, a, a revolution to take take power through violence. It's just something that, you know... I just want to... Go ahead. Sorry, and I'm trying not to interrupt, but this no, is this is something I feel very passionate go about, ahead. which is when people talk about violence, they always think of the sort of explicit, you know, guns and bombs and swords and tanks and yada 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 forms of violence. Yeah. What they never seem to think about are the implicit forms of violence that are going on right now every single day, right? Violence is being done to us constantly. Right. We are under constant threat of imprisonment, eviction of, you know, being uh, of, you know, being forced to go homeless, go starving, uh, you know, die from treatable and preventable illnesses simply because we can't pay or dying from injuries for the same reason. Right. We're constantly under a threat of violence. It is not as explicit violence. Sure. But like it's still violent. It's just it, it, it is it is the violence of fear as opposed to the violence of the gun, right? It, or rather, it is the threat of violence of of the gun. But it's you know it's mainly done through fear. So we're constantly under a state of violence as it is, which is why like I don't want a violent revolution. I want to Same. find any possible Same. way to to avoid that. However. I don't know if that's going to be possible, right? Because the state, so the the common anarchist definition of the state, which I happen to agree with, is that the state is that entity which holds the monopoly on the legitimate use of violence within a, a society, a nation, a region, whatever. And I I tend to agree with that, right? So I don't know if we can necessarily get out of get out from under that monopoly of violence without doing some of our own. But I am very much an advocate for finding ways, if violence must be used, to be defensive and justified. Defensive. Only, right? I definitely agree with defensive. Uh, yeah. Just use of violence, though, you know, I think it would depend on... So, like, for example, Hitler would probably have said, what I'm doing is just... You know, Germany has been threatened for, I don't know, whatever his historical engineering was... Um, you know, at the time, but Genghis Khan probably used uh, just use of violence when he was conquering, you know, uh, whatever, you know, eras and millennia ago. So I think it depends on, you know, who you're asking if the use of violence is just. But what, what I'll definitely say is it should be defensive. You know, if, if, yeah. if us on the left or... Um, you know, for example, the still, the, or I'm sorry, the gold miners, you know, if they were fighting back against the police and sheriffs and people dropping bombs on them, then I would say that that is definitely a just 
use of violence, you know, but I don't want, um, you know, I don't want an aggressive uh, use of violence where, you know, we are, again, on the left in, in terms of a revolution, the, the aggressors, like, there's only going to be violence, um, uh, you know, if, again, if, if the ruling class doesn't want to give their power willingly, which they probably don't. Now, I always, I don't know if there's like a protest thing, uh, I saw a video or something like that, it was someone like on the loudspeaker at some big protest that like, you know, we're here for, we're peacefully. There's only going to be violence if the police use it against us, that sort of thing. And I, I like that. Like I'm by no means a pacifist or I'm not a radical pacifist, but I believe, um, you know, for, the use of force must be justified. And I think it's always justified when you're using it as defensive, you know? Yeah. So, so here's my, okay. So my definition of justified violence, I think goes along with that. And okay. Apologies for the somewhat circular definition here because I haven't found a better way to put this, but it makes sense in my head and I just can't figure out quite the right words to to make it actually sound good. Justified violence is that violence which is used to protect from another form of unjustified violence. And you see where the where the circular definition comes in, right? Yeah. But ultimately, like you have an initial use of violence, which is not justified because it's not protecting anyone else, yourself or someone else, from imminent harm. And so that violence will be kind of the... Um, anyone who's familiar with either Magic the Gathering or computer science, and I realize there's a lot of overlap wow, with those, but I can't, yeah. I can't think of any, <laughs> any other groups that tend to use this terminology. There's a concept called the stack, right? Uh, and it works effectively the same way in both cases. The stack is this idea of you have an action and then that action triggers another action and then maybe that triggers another action and so on and so forth. And so when you finally get to an action that has not triggered another action, you start uh, to resolve each of those actions uh in a in a last item first way, right? So you you put the first item on the bottom, second item on top of that, third item on top of that, fourth item on top of that. So then you take the fourth one off, resolve that. The third one off, resolve that. Second one off, resolve that. And then the bottom one that was at, or that was the first, right? And so I'm kind of building up this structure of violence in my head in the same sort of way, right? There's always an initial act of violence that occurs that did not have any real justification, um, you know, other than perhaps, you know, fear of something happening. Exactly. But fear of something versus an actual imminent threat with evidence behind it, these are not the same thing, right? So let's go, so, let's go to the ruling class. When they, they said that yeah. essentially Vietnam, you know, was a threat to U.S. national security, or Afghanistan was a threat to national security, or that Saddam Hussein was an imminent threat to U.S. national security, and that, you know, he was making weapons of mass destruction. That was turned out to be false. And if he was making weapons of mass destruction, it would have been uh, because of the help of the CIA, you know, so, of course, fear is always used to justify violence. Um, we have, like, preemptive war, where it's like, we have to attack, you know, Iraq. Otherwise, they're going to invade the United States thousands of miles away. That's always the pretext, and it's always very flimsy when the United States attacks and occupies and uses um, force uh, to, for imperialism and economic interest, you know, and power. Uh, and let's talk about violence here, too. Uh, Afghanistan, which I think we're withholding, like, Fifty uh, billion dollars in assets once the once after the twenty years that we 
uh, spent in Afghanistan that replaced the Taliban with the Taliban. Once the Taliban retook power in Afghanistan, I think we're withholding like something like fifty billion in assets. We should be paying. Uh, we should not be freezing Afghan assets. We should be um, giving this money back to them, and we should be paying reparations. So let's talk about violence here. The country with the highest severe threats of hunger was, you guessed it, Afghanistan. Uh, and since, um, let's see, yeah, in 2019, so it looks like here a new study says up to half the population of Afghanistan are facing extreme hunger right now. Uh, this says uh, from 2019 to 2022, uh, 6.6 million people are starving, food insecure. And you know uh, the thing about um Dying of hunger, it's not a quick death. Uh, you could, you know, survive a long time on grass, roots, bark. Um, so you want to talk about real violence. How about the victims of U.S. imperialism that are dying every day uh, from hunger? And we're also, you know, using sanctions and economic terrorism, withholding money from the people that we went in and victimized. Uh, it, it's ridiculous. It, it's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. It's, it's um, you know, it's harsh. It's cruel. Let, let's call it what it is. It's evil. Like, I don't use that word lightly because it is a very subjective word. But if you look at all the facts of the kind of shit that we've been doing to places like Afghanistan and Iraq and the sort of sanctions we've put on Cuba, Iran, the DPRK, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, these are all concerted efforts to cause. Yeah. These are all concerted efforts to cause suffering to to create or to to you know impel change within these regions. And it's interesting because so the typical definition of terrorism is you know the use of political violence or the use of violence to uh, create some form of political change. Right. If by that definition, the U.S. government is the largest terrorist organization on the planet it's a terrorist state it's worse it's not just an organization yeah. it's a terrorist state yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a rogue state it's a terrorist state it does not follow international yeah. um law and in fact uh the reagan administration was even sanctioned by the world court for its latin american terror uh you know terrorist campaigns um for over a decade so i think it was one of the only mm-hmm. countries to ever be sanctioned by the world court of course nothing came of it i think guatemala i think they went to to court to try to stop um, the terrorism campaign there, and they lost because you know the United States controls the world, uses force, also has a much influence in the world court and the you know the political system, uh, international political system, and unfortunately, there's a lot of you know indoctrination and propaganda that the the world is you know ruled by you know you know things like human rights and international law and order and all that kind of stuff. But um, just look at even our enemy right now, Russia. You know, today. They go to the to an international court to you know try to stop the spread of NATO or try to you know uh, I guess annex territories in Ukraine. No, of course not. They they're doing the same tactic right out of the United States playbook. You know the Cold War was basically just you know aggression from the United States countered by aggression from Russia. You know kind of back and forth in this you know uh, interplay which which Cold War was. Um, uh, but, you know, essentially, you know, the global south has been victimized by terrorism, imperialism, aggression um, from from Russia and the United States for decades. Uh, and, and one of the reasons I think that they are kind of staying neutral in this proxy war going on in Russia. But I think it's an easy display here that the ro- world is ruled by force. 
Uh, if you don't believe me, take a look at the United States. Uh, again, their history in Latin America, Afghanistan, Iraq twice. We can go back to Vietnam uh, and, and Russia. They were in they were in Afghanistan. Uh, they were, you know, in in you know in their uh, imperial campaigns and and some of them going on right now in in uh, Ukraine. So unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of talk about you know again international law, justice, human rights, but unfortunately, the world is ruled by force. And the United States has the most powerful, uh, scary, frightening, um, destructive military uh, in the history of the world. So we rule the world because we have the biggest stick, you know? Yep. So unfortunately, sorry, not an elbow on my desk. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we we rule, we essentially rule the world through our gigantic military force. You know, we, we still spend more money on our military than the next 10 countries combined. Um, you know, a, a statistic I like to pull out a lot because it's really easy to check. Yeah. Um, like, there is no reason for the U.S. military to spend that much money on its own upkeep and expansion if not to maintain uh, the the you know the United States' hegemonic control over the rest of the world. To maintain the disparity, we have a, the United States has strategic advantage in force, and we want to maintain that disparity. We also have a disparity in wealth, so we use the force to maintain that disparity of wealth. I want to go back to um, we've been really political here. I want to go back to like automation and how yeah. um, technology. The way I see it, technology is neutral. It depends on you know how is that technology used. Or who's in control of that technology? You had mentioned about you know kind of keeping us poor and and that sort of thing as being violent. No question about it. And right now we're competing with robots and automation, putting us out of jobs. We could easily have automation that was created and designed to empower skilled workers. We had, you had mentioned about um, you know kind of the hierarchies within the workplace. And you know if you you were going to ask someone. Um, you know, how to put up a cable wire for whatever internet or some telecom system. You're not going to ask the CEO, assuming again, they know, you know, the difference between a, a computer and a, I don't know, you know, uh, <laughs> a hole in the ground. But, um, you know, automation is neutral, just like most technology. I don't know about nuclear bombs. I don't know if that's necessarily neutral. I think that can only be used for evil. We can get into that debate. I've done it on a few shows and no one outside of maybe deflecting an asteroid could come up with a better or a positive use of nuclear weapon or bomb. But anyways, automation, I digress. Automation could have been designed to empower skilled workers, allowing them more autonomy and um, giving them decision-making ability within the workplace. Instead, however, automation was designed and, and, and put into, and, into use, essentially, to empower management and to de-skill workers. The United States is the most heavily managed society in the world. We have layers and layers and layers of inefficient management that contribute absolutely nothing to product uh, production or productivity. Uh, very unproductive, very highly paid. That's again, that's class, um, you know, kind of distribution or you know, class society. Uh, typically, the managers make more money than the workers, even though they don't bring much to the table. Um, and then let's, you know, talking talking about like the research and development of like automation and computers and all these different types of programs that was done in the public sector for decades, especially uh, at least in terms of internets and computers for maybe. 
you know, th- three or four decades uh, before it was, you know, kind of spun off and given away to people like Bill Gates to make a fortune on, they were all produced with, um, you know, public money in, in public universities and colleges from grants from the, you know, from the government. So essentially, um, you know, research and development and costs of production were socialized. But once it could have been, once it was able to monetize and profit, it was given away to private business. So that's typically how, um, you know, the system works in, in at least this country. Um, you know, we have essentially capitalism uh, for and rugged free markets for the poor. And we have socialism and generous state protections um, for the rich and powerful. That's, so that's typically kind of how the system is, uh, you know, kind of structured here. It's a pretty nice business model when the taxpayer pays for the cost of research and development so Bill Gates can make a fortune on it. Uh, you know, what a, way to, what a way to go about things. But what do you think about automation right now and essentially, you know, American workers and workers all around the globe, uh, we are competing with computers and automation for our jobs. And we don't really have much of an option. Um, you know, wage slavery or essentially, you know, renting ourselves to a master for the subsistence to get by for food and shelter, um, you know, if, if we're put out of work, I mean, the the welfare system and the safety nets in this country are almost non-existent. It's not going to be good for us. And it looks like, uh, I mean, every every big city that I've been around, it seems like the, the, the homeless population is growing and, and growing. Um, things are starting to look a little bit dire uh, unless we finally fight back in this one-sided class war. And there is a lot of, um, you know, unionization and resistance movements led by workers and organized um, unions and, and that sort of thing, which is which is a positive. But certainly the way that the ruling class um, wants things to go, they want to kind of use this automation and computers to put us out of business so they can maximize their profits a whole lot cheaper, <laughs> you know, to maintain a computer. You don't have to pay a computer benefits, health care, retirement, all that sort of stuff. And you don't even have to worry about, uh, you know, safety standards. You can kind of put them to work 24 hours a day, computers and automation. They don't even need to sleep. Yeah. All right. So um, I agree with what you said. Automation, uh, technology in general is is neutral. It is a tool. And tools can be used for any number of, of uh uh, you know, actions, whether they be harmful or constructive. Um, automation is no different, right? I personally think automation is, is like, it is the way I think that humanity will find its way out of the drudgery of, you know, unnecessary manual labor for basic things. And, you know, ultimately it will give us the time to pursue you know, pursue what humans are really good at, you know, various forms of art, philosophy, you know, generally just, you know, living in community with one another. And I think that there is, you know, there are a lot of people, I think, who who think that, you know, do the whole Protestant work ethic, work is good for the soul kind of stuff. And I'm like, uh, not really. I think that there is, there's the idea that like, we are naturally compelled to do things, but those compulsions are largely out of our own sense of we want to accomplish something. And you don't have to, you know, muck toilets to accomplish something. There are lots of ways we can do that. And people will have various different passions in in how they do that. So I think ultimately... Uh, automation is is good for us, but the problem is automation under capitalism doesn't work. Right. That Who's way. controlling that um, automation? 
Who's yeah. controlling that a technology? Friend of mine, a friend of mine who's a musician recently um, rewrote some lyrics from an old um, an old song that's literally just called The Worker's Song. I uh, encourage people to look it up. It's a fairly short song. It's very, uh, it's really good. But um, one of the lines he changed to, um, you know, I can't remember the exact line now, of course. Uh, but it's when something along the lines of, you know, machine or, uh, you know, Automation would see our, our our burden eased, but because bosses demand profits, the machines see us robbed, right? It's this idea that, you know, it should make our lives easier. It should give us more leisure time, but in fact, it's just threatening to, to make us that, uh, you know, that much more... Um, expendable to to the people in control um i i think that uh i I recently uh read another book again by david graber because i've been on a bit of a graber spree lately um which was bullshit jobs which is a great book i recommend everyone read it um but in it he talks about the fact that um you know even the liberal economist john maynard Keynes, uh you know back something 100 years ago uh, thought by that by now everyone would be working fifteen to twenty hour weeks, right? That that we would get to the point where we had enough productive capacity that everyone could work half what we're working now, and everything would get along great. And so the fact that we're not at that point brings up the question of why not? Well, maybe it's simply not possible. I think Graeber does a great job of just tearing that right to shreds. Like there's so much work that is done or rather there are so many people that have jobs that don't do actual work. Yeah. Um, and, but are paid just absurd amounts for doing that non-work. Um, and honestly, like for a lot of these people, it's not like, I'm not just talking about like CEOs technically, I don't want to get too deep into that right now, but like the idea of there are so many people in just, you know, working class positions that don't do anything really at their jobs. And that can be kind of a soul crushing thing because you're still expected to to sit there for eight hours a day, but, and, and, but you're effectively doing nothing, but you have to try and look busy because if anyone actually admits that they're doing nothing, well, then they get fired. Right. So it's kind of a fucked up way of, of doing things. And yet somehow this system has become the the main system by which capitalism works. And so I think that, um, you know, we actually could get to that 15, 20 hours a week or even less with automation. But we need to find a different way of actually allowing people to survive this whole idea that like, you have to work a certain amount of time. You have to rent out your body for a certain amount of hours um, to get the money that you need to survive is just absurd. It makes no fucking sense. And it's like, it is a soul crushing way to live no matter what you're doing. So I think automation really needs to be something that, that we push for. And I think, uh, and some people will call me an accelerationist for this, and they might be right. I don't know. But I think that I, I see a lot of people on the left fighting against automation. Um, the kind of the biggest boogeyman I see these days is like self-checkouts in grocery stores because, you know, it's it, the argument is, yeah, it's taking away jobs. With, with from, the current economic system, with the current economic yeah. system, it is definitely our enemy. 
But there's no yeah. reason it can't be our friend, like to do well, to free us so, up for so creative here's my, endeavors. Yeah, to free us up for creative things, here, stuff we want to do. You know. Yeah. Here, here's my thinking, though. Right. It is. Um, and and we can kind of see this with the current WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes, which is the increase of use of automation within an industry has led to a small resurgence in labor organizing. And I think that the more that happens, the more these capitalists uh, move toward finding ways to get machines and computers to do the jobs that humans previously did, I think that will actually get more people involved and see that this is what they've been doing all along and get people to actually organize. So I think this might be like the expansion of automation even under capitalism could potentially be used uh, for the benefit of of people on, you know, people with our ideas and actually maybe get people on board with saying, okay, well then if we're just going to say that that machines can do the jobs of humans, then we need to find, uh, you know, we need to f- not just find, but fight for better ways to, you know, to keep our people, you know, to keep the people afloat as it were you know to actually get needs met because we can we can meet all of the needs the entire population of humanity has right now we have the resources right anyone who tells you that like there there's a problem with scarcity and that's why we need capitalism and markets and all this shit to to properly allocate resources no we have far more resources than we need the problem here is allocation, and that's just because we are still stuck in this system that says you have to do something to get something when that was that was never a thing that was necessary to happen, but only because like there was some amount of scarcity in the past. Now that there is no scarcity, do we really need that idea anymore? I don't think so. Yeah, I think we can, I, I think there are much better ways that we could come up with to actually you know get to a point where everyone has their needs met without having to be coerced in i apologize we had a little bit of a technical difficulty there kevin was talking about coercion and he gets right into a discussion about nuclear energy so here we go oh you good Uh, something buzzed in there yeah i don't know that's a weird sound okay anyways but the underlying technology there of nuclear reactions nuclear fission and fusion those are incredibly useful and i think that in terms of like because you know one of the biggest issues of our time is climate change and it's primarily due to how we produce the energy that we use you know i think we need to we need a lot more people getting on board with using nuclear power as you know as the tool that it can be used for. And so we can actually use this, this technology of nuclear reactions as a positive rather than negative. Yeah. That's all I wanted to say about that. The, uh, the environment though, like, so there's definitely, so first off scarcity is manufactured. And I think that that is, um, you know, kind of uh, neoclassical economics. So, you know, we have to have, we have to have like manufactured scarcity. Um, the other thing that the capitalists do is they monopolize our time. Um, you know, there, there's always a fight for more uh, working hours and, you know, like breaks, like even, so obviously like there, we won the eight hour workday, although uh, working hours continue to be on the rise. Um, many people have to work multiple jobs 
just for subsistence, uh, like um, breaks and lunches, you know, those are unpaid. That's ridiculous. The eight hour workday is not like, you know, uh, unpaid breaks and, and lunch times. It's like eight hours of day, you know, like not more than that. Like it's eight hours. And honestly, you know, if you want to within the least of the current economic system, which, okay, unions are cool. And, and, you know, to asking the capitalists to be a little bit more benevolent is a great thing. Like for example, paying us on our commute time. How about including that in, in the eight hour workday? That'd be great. What I would rather have though is Workers owning and controlling the means of production. Uh, I'm not a Marxist, but I do like that terminology. I'm going to go back to mm-hmm. Wilhelm von Humboldt, who said, um, you know, in, in terms of having a, uh, a skilled art- artisan, he's kind of talking about wage slavery, a skilled artisan producing under external command. We might admire what he does, but we despise what he is. So that's wage slavery. Also kind of what uh, Lincoln and the Republican Party thought they were fighting against during the Civil War. Um, what they thought was wage slavery wasn't all that different than chattel slavery, other than it's um, temporary. You know, you get to go home at the end of the day. Um, you know, you get weekends, ideally, you know, if you're, if you're privileged. Um, maybe at some point you can retire, um, that sort of thing. Um, obviously, slavery, it's, it's not temporary. It's, it's you know, it's, um, it's your entire life and there's almost no chance you get out of it, you know. So, um, yeah. was, what they so there's, there's sure. an anthropological definition of slavery, which it, it has less to do with, um, you know, with like being controlled and has more to do with social relations. And I think this is a very useful definition because it, essentially a slave is someone who has no social relations with anyone else except the person who owns them, right? And this, I think, can be can be shown to be true of people who are, you know, who are working when, you know, when you or when you're at your place of employment, let's just say McDonald's, you know, when you're a cashier at McDonald's, you don't really have any social relations. You don't have it between your coworkers. You don't have it with the people that you are um you're you're you know interacting with as customers the only person you really have any form of social relation with is your manager during that time right or your supervisor whatever and that's because they're the ones who tell you what to do um and then you you get that privilege back when you're off the clock but the fact is that like it's still this this situation of workers are not considered people in most interactions they're considered little more than a meat machine that happens to be able to do the thing that you want them to do when you're you know when you're conducting that transaction very minimal rights very, very minimal rights yeah no human exactly. rights almost and, it, it lost their... and so yeah and so like this lack of social relation is the main problem and like again i'm also not a marxist but i find a lot of marx's analysis very useful one of the things he talked about was alienation which is exactly what i'm talking about here people are alienated from one another they're alienated from their coworkers, from the customers and like the only person that they have a real interaction with is their supervisor or manager and even then it is a you know it, it is a one-way interaction right you very rarely if ever can you you know actually have that be any sort of fair interaction so you know what we need to do is we need to realize that this is at the core of the problem with wage slavery is this idea of like we are we're turning into 
something else, something that is not truly human when we are, you know, stuck behind that cash or, you know, that cashier or, you know, we're working in that warehouse. We are, you know, we're little more than, than meat machines that are there to perform a task. And like, we're effectively only given the ability to be human once we leave that. And, we can only be human when we agree to do that to ourselves because that's how we get the money that we need to actually survive as humans. So let's go back to the possibly the father of capitalism. He was actually a philosopher and a philosopher. I like some of his stuff, his ethics stuff, Adam Smith. Uh, the thing about Adam Smith, my favorite philosopher is Chomsky. I don't know if you've read any of his work, but all of the a lot of the ideas, at least I talk about, are influenced by Chomsky, uh, and he he likes to say that you know we're supposed to we're supposed to marvel and um, you know look up to Adam Smith, uh, but we're never supposed to read him. We're never supposed to read Adam Smith, and he was a he was a complex figure and, and, a, and a figure of the Enlightenment. He certainly did not stand for um, some of the things that you know the capitalists tried to say he stood for, or what capitalism stood stood for. They they called it the the new spirit of the of the age, gain wealth and forget all but self. That was not what Adam Smith was about. But he had, he had an argument actually against distribution of labor. We all remember Adam Smith in like the pin factory, like, you know, with steel and, you know, you have to like, you know, iron it out or whatever, you know, whatever process you do to make it like a little pin. Um, and, and maybe you can make a few uh, pins a day. If you were doing every single job at that pin factory, uh, you know, maybe a few pins a day. But if you get a group of people and and divide up the labor, the, the distribution of labor, people working together, all of a sudden you can produce hundreds, if not thousands of pins every single day on an assembly line, which, you know, is a good thing for productivity and that sort of stuff. But he goes on to actually say the distribution of labor um, you know, if it, if it continues to go on, will make human beings into creatures so stupid and ignorant a human being can be. You know, if we're if we're so laser like focused on our spreadsheets, you know, or um, you know, maybe just being a janitor, um, you know, cleaning up after other people. That's one thing when I think about a classless society. Not that janitors aren't doing an insanely important job; they are, but what they don't usually get is high paid. Wait, they don't get um, you know high wages, and they also don't, don't get decision making abilities in terms of you know the, the the direction of the company. You know, you sweep the floors and you clean the bathrooms. In, in a real democratic society, we would all do those things. There wouldn't be a person that just does that. You know, that picks up trash and picks up after us. We would all do it together. Not only that, we'd also make decisions together. You know, there wouldn't be one person or on top or a small group of people on top making all the decisions, there would be actually democratic participation. So his argument, again, was against the distribution of labor. We shouldn't have a janitor and an accountant and uh, an executive and maybe a lawyer, but we'd all be working together and, and you know, kind of doing, doing multiple different jobs and multiple different roles and all having an equal say uh, and maybe where the company is going, and maybe with the production, uh, and maybe with the products that we're producing. Um, you know, maybe we want to, hey, maybe we're a factory that makes safety pins, but maybe we decide, hey, we need to make, uh, you know, some other need for the community, and we can pivot and, and, and make something else, um, like clean water or something like that, you know, like maybe a filtration system or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, just, just generally, 
um, you know, the way that the, the, the workplace is structured, there is very minimal participation in these corporations, these um, private tyrannies, they um, are all about hierarchy and they kind of, you know, kind of, they kind of create, that's the vehicle I think the capitalists use to create that, you know, divided society. Um, I think that, you know, if we all had a say and we all, you know, we're a little bit more diversified and, and learned, you know, different roles and different jobs. And um, I think that would be a much better society. And that would also be a society that would be, you know, much more fulfilling instead of, you know, you just focus on laser like focus uh, on some area of the production, you know, in, in an assembly line. You can do that eight hours a day. I mean, how mind numbing could something be, you know, thinking about like on a safety pin assembly line or even an assembly line in a, in a big auto in Detroit, um, you know, putting some tires on all day long, eight hours a day. You know, I don't know. what the, I've never been in an assembly line, but I would imagine it would be terribly boring, you know, and all of a sudden uh, you got these guys in these um, offices that make all the decisions and make all the money, not putting one <laughs> item on the assembly line, you know, so I think management and distribution of decision-making needs to be equal throughout the workplace, not just the division of labor, like Adam Sissel saying, making human beings as ignorant and stupid as a human being can be. I also go to like what you were saying about doing useless and pointless jobs. Like for example, let's go to the um, healthcare system in the United States. If you go to a hospital in the United States, you have a billing department. It's the size of a whole floor, you know, with insurance companies and, you know, forms and processes that we're trying to fill out. Um, you know, if you go to uh, hospitals in other countries, you know, maybe that could actually be used to take care of patients and clinics and have doctors there instead of having, you know, again, accountants and financial analysts and, you know, all these all these jobs putting in spreadsheets and sending them back to insurance companies and getting forms signed. We don't need to do any of that stuff. It doesn't necessarily contribute to society. It certainly contributes to the flow of money, and it can definitely make it easy for the insurance company to say, we deny because you didn't uh, – you didn't fill out form uh, 7C. You know, you didn't you didn't fill out the section X Y Z. So we're going to deny the coverage, and then then your uh, then the patient gets a bill. You know, if we could just cut out the middleman in these insurance companies, we probably wouldn't need. There's probably millions of people, at least thousands of people that work in hospital billing um, departments and you know accounting for all these ridiculous forms that insurance companies and the bureaucracy that they enforce on healthcare. Clinicians, if you can't tell, I'm a healthcare worker, so I don't like insurance companies very much. <laughs> but I, I really support, um, you know, universal healthcare, uh, and not necess- not necessarily just Medicare for all, but I kind of like NHS, where we actually have like governmental, um, publicly managed, you know, clinics, not just an insurance company, but um, you know, we have public doctors and that sort of thing. I, I think I, I think that would be you know cool. I think in, in America it would be awesome to have you know public clinics that people wouldn't have to have a card to go into. If you're if you're in this country, you get to go there and your healthcare is free. You're taken care of because, in my opinion, healthcare is a human right. Yeah. Um, now I will say that like there are people who have uh, who take issue with like Britain's NHS and like rightly so, but that's largely because the conservative government there has continuously underfunded that program that's for it. decades, and it's just gone downhill. Um, you know, so you can trace back almost all of the current issues with the the UK's NHS to underfunding by the the Tory government. What you do is you um, underfund, but, so you make sure that it runs terribly, and then when the people get upset, you say, hey, let's privatize. That's kind of how it works. Yeah, that's 
Yeah, that's exactly how it works. And I've also worked not directly in the healthcare system, but so my my background employment is all in technology. So usually I work in various, uh, I work for various companies doing, you know, software support or, you know, sysadmin stuff. So I worked for a time with a company whose, whose main product was a, um, an insurance billing software. Um, so it, it allow, or not, not billing so much as claims processing. So it literally took in the claims that healthcare providers sent to insurance companies and process process them according to rules made up by the health insurance companies. And in doing this work, I found out just how convoluted the entire system is. Um, so I, with, I don't want to go into too much detail because I could speak for hours on that alone. But suffice to say that so much of the healthcare industry is based on estimates of what other doctors provide the same uh, service for. The problem is all of that shit self-reported. So yeah. you end up with this system where effectively doctors get to set their own rates and, uh, and the insurance companies will say, okay, we'll pay up to like the 80th percentile of what doctors in this zip code charge for this operation. Right. And then, but of course, the doctors so, know the system. They know how much they're going to they get. They're not going to. They know they're not going to get a hundred percent of what they ask for. So they're going to set a high bar, knowing, hey, I'm going to get about eighty percent or seventy percent or sixty. Yeah, and this is, is hospitals have been doing this for ages, where you know they they set their prices absurdly high so that when they go to the insurance companies and they develop a contract with them saying okay well we'll give you know we'll give these services to your uh subscribers for this lower amount and you know then the insurance companies are like hey we're getting a discount but it's only because the hospital has massively inflated the you know its its main book charges and so people who come in without insurance get charged that full price they get charged and full end price. up paying yep yeah and and end up paying through the nose for something that the hospital knows is a hyperinflated price that they made that big because they wanted the insurance companies to think they were getting a discount I so don't know, maybe in in, in the US Health insurance is entirely like managed and created by the needs of the insurance companies. And one, one other interesting thing um, about like why we, so uh, going back to the whole bullshit jobs thing, you know, most health insurance companies are full of bullshit jobs. Like it's, it's a bunch of administrative bloat that has no business being there. But the thing is, even the, you know, even the vaunted progressive politicians like Barack Obama understand that, like, that is, according to their ideology, a necessity, right? Obama himself said that he didn't want a universal health care system because of what would happen to all of those jobs. All of those jobs that provide no actual utility or value to the healthcare system, they literally leech off of it. But, you know, we, we, we got to save the jobs. Even if these jobs are completely pointless, we got to save the jobs. Yeah, no, it's such a stupid it, argument. Such a dumb argument. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. So, anyways. Um, well, yeah. So I'll get to the administrative I, I agree costs. with. Sorry, what? The administrative costs. So I guess um, people have studied this. The administrative costs for Medicare are a fraction of the administrative costs for private insurance um, 
companies who have bloated CEOs making tens and millions, tens of millions of dollars, literally for their for their compensation and salaries. Um, and the other thing about the um, it's a it's a it's a regressive tax, right? So, or no, I guess it's a flat tax because you know go back to the distribution of labor or the janitor is paying the same for his premium than the CEO, you know, his, he or she is paying the same for their healthcare premium as the CEO. If you actually had a it's society, actually worse than that, yeah, it's probably, actually worse than that. It is regressive. Worse. So yeah. the, the problem is it's, it has nothing to do with the premiums. The premiums are what everyone focuses on, but are just the tip of the iceberg, right? Premiums are just, uh, they're they're the upfront cost that everyone sees. What's really there is the the co-pays, the co-insurance, the you know the deductibles, the various limits on uh, on care and coverage, and then the fact that if you think about it this way, so uh, a bigwig CEO making you know a billion dollars a year, exaggerating, but anyways, making a crap ton of money a year can afford the premiums on the highest, nicest healthcare plan that has the lowest co-pays, the lowest co-insurances, deductibles, all of these, it has the lowest out-of-pocket costs, which means overall, they're spending less money than the person who can only afford the bronze plan on the healthcare connector. And so they have the highest out-of-pocket costs. So yeah, their premiums are lower than what the big guy, you know, the big CEO guy is able to afford, but the amount of money they're actually expected to pay to gain access to proper healthcare is way higher. It is a regressive tax. It is literally a backward system. The people who are the least able to pay are expected to pay the most. And what you also have is like regulatory capture, you know, where probably the mm-hmm. lobbyists that were writing up Obamacare, which is like, I guess, thousands of pages of nonsense, um, you know, that probably unless you have a law degree and, you know, you're a sadist, you wouldn't read through. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that just just generally like regulatory capture, uh, you got insurance lobbyists uh, and, you know, people within the industry um, all of a sudden, you know, writing up the legislation and the bills and, and they're behind, you know, this Obamacare stuff. And I think you see it in the financial institutions, too. Like, for example, when we um, with the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, the same class of people that got us into it, you know, the greedy bankers, they were the same people that Obama chose on his uh, economic team, you know, bankers, Wall Street lawyers and um, you know, hedge fund people. I mean, all these advisors, these economic advisors, were literally the people that crashed the entire economy. And uh, if you want to go to the healthcare system and the regulatory capture, we don't have a healthcare system in the United States. We have a national uh, disaster. It's 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 a it's a joke. Uh, we pay more for healthcare in the United States with some of the worst outcomes, and yet these are the people we have designing the system. If we could just take a look mm-hmm. at any other country around the world, we might find some inspiration. But instead, you know, we have executives within the within the system, the insiders that have given us the worst the worst healthcare system uh, money can buy. Because literally, it's so expensive. Unless you have tons and tons of money, unless you are a CEO, like you said, yeah, it's kind of like a regressive system where the poorest people have to pay the most for the worst some of the worst care. It's it's incredible. 
um, you know, how the, yep. how the system is designed and they want to keep it that way. They want to ensure, you know, and what they try to use are these lame arguments like, oh, you know, what we need is these billing people and these in- insurance companies. They have a really important job. Well, look at this. You want to talk about jobs that need done here. I, I pulled this up in another podcast, but I have um, infrastructure report card. I think the United States got a C minus, a C minus in infrastructure. Uh, we can just go to aviation, D minus, bridges, C, uh, roads, D, dams, D, drinking water, C minus. That's important. Energy grid, C minus. Hazardous waste. I just read an article uh, about the fecal matter in Galveston in the ocean. That's not good. It's contaminated with horrible bacteria. Um, just incredible. All the problems and work that needs to be done. And yet we probably have thousands, if not millions of people sitting on spreadsheets and computers all day long. Well, we have literally problems that we need to work. There's no, you know, this, there's no shortage of idle hands, you know, with unemployed people and stuff. And, but there's tons and tons of jobs that need to be done just to go take a walk around your local community. Um, there's all sorts of things that need to be done. And yet, uh, let's quote your favorite author here again. So many people w- focused on doing 40 hours a week of bullshit jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, we have a system that seems to be designed around creating as much bloat as possible Um Primarily, I think, to to hide as much of the access to the system as they can behind a bureaucratic mess, right? Because the more complicated you make the system, the harder you make it for people without a lot of time, a lot of resources to be able to navigate that system. And therefore, the more you can swindle them out of simply because it's so complex that unless you've dedicated your, you know, half your life to understanding it, you're probably not going to be able to figure it out. So and the infrastructure bill, which was another neoliberal bill, we certainly need uh, infrastructure in the United States. Uh, It's a long needed overhaul. Just go look at the report card. The last 20 years we've needed it. But it's essentially a corporate giveaway. There's not like a public jobs program. What I'm really all for is like a Green New Deal, New Deal type of thing. Let me just read this stat. I think I've read it on another podcast. Currently, 42% of all bridges in the United States are 50 years old, and uh, which which comes to about 46,154. Um, 7.5% of these bridges are considered structurally deficient or in poor condition. And 178 million trips are taken across these structurally deficient bridges every single day in the United States. How about that? For work that yeah, needs to that, be done. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely correct. And like the, I, I've seen the the website that you're quoting from the report of, of yeah. civil engineers, yep. you know, grading the infrastructure of the U.S. And the fact is that, like, you know, what America American has run for a long time on a very piecemeal system, right? We will occasionally create these big massive programs to build out infrastructure, which is which, you know, is generally a good thing, right? And building generally, that infrastructure yeah. is usually needed. The problem is we're very bad at maintenance. So what we do is we create these big massive systems, but then we put no thought really into maintaining those systems. And so they they look all nice and shiny and new when they get built, and then we let them erode. And we, we A, we don't build them to last. B, we don't 
put the money into the maintenance that we need and see when they do finally inevitably fail we're like oh no nothing could have been done to prevent this <laughs> right so yeah. anyways um anyway it has been absolutely great being on the podcast uh thank you so much for for you know the opportunity to come speak and you know if you ever want to talk again i would love to do it but i do have to be going so Thank yeah, you brother. so much for the opportunity. Hey, yeah, we, there's so much other stuff we could have gotten into, uh, education, science. Maybe we'll try that another time. I appreciate your time tonight. I'm so, absolutely uh, willing anytime you want. So generous. All right, my friend, have a great night. You as well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I also want to thank my special guest, Kevin who goes by Ancom SciCom for a great political discussion, which included one of my favorite topics, anarchism. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.